providing help and assistance to One issue that gets me upset, it's this one. Because everybody in this town, everybody in this town knows that it's a problem. Everybody understands and appreciates that it creates great stress for agricultural producers. A thousand home loans that were done at USDA. 137,000 families who had the pride of home ownership because of the work at USDA. We, we purchased uh, 9.9 billion pounds of food for distribution to food banks and, and uh, the school lunch programs. We helped to feed 30 million kids at schools. You know, the list goes on and on and on. We helped uh, several thousand businesses with home, with business loans and business grants and communities. We did about 800 to 900 grants for local and regional food systems. So when you see the magnitude of the work that's been done, the Forest Service uh, and the tremendous work that they have to do to keep fires contained, and things. I, I love the people I work for. Folks out there in rural America, um, they're good, hardworking folks. They care about themselves and their families and their communities and their country. And I think they're appreciative of the work that's done on their behalf at the Department of Agriculture. So it's a it's a relatively easy thing to do, and it's an, an incredibly uh, honor. It's an incredible honor. I've known President Biden for, for over 30 years, um, and I've not been able to figure out how to say no to the guy. So again, it is always interesting to find out the motivation behind a lot of decisions. You know, this is certainly a high profile role, uh, but with high profile and increased demands of your responsibilities, uh, another reporter had asked what he saw his biggest trade opportunities were and what the biggest challenges are. There are, I think, a number of opportunities from a trade perspective, uh, which is why we're focusing our trade mission uh, several aspects of our trade mission on, on there's an opportunity there, especially the UK, having uh, sort of distanced itself from the EU, it now has perhaps more flexibility in terms of some of the tough issues that have made it harder for us to have trade conversations with uh, with the EU. Uh, I think uh, the fact that there's a trade mission uh, being proposed to Kenya and, and to Rwanda indicates growing populations and in some countries, more stable governments uh, resulting in a stronger economy, rising middle class, more consumption of protein, uh, plays to the strengths of U.S. agriculture. Uh, the obvious uh, answer to your question would obviously be Southeast Asia as well for the same reason. Uh, it's the, it's uh, the, the reason why uh, there's a uh, you know, mission to, to the Philippines if you take a look at where and uh, G20 meeting in Indonesia for, for that purpose. And so... And, and I think it's important to do all of that as a counterweight and a counterbalance to an over-reliance and over-dependence on one market, which is China. When you ask the question, you know, where are the concerns? Well, uh, the concerns are are in China, not necessarily because of the trade relationship, because that continues to, to, you know, to be a significant one. It's because there are other factors within that relationship that that could at some point in time disrupt that relationship. They could make a decision not to not to trade. Uh, I think that they're going to continue to need us given the, the challenges of Ukraine. They get a lot of their corn from Ukraine, for example. Where are they going to get it now that Ukraine has a hard time to growing it or exporting it? So I think I, my belief is it will continue to see a relationship there, but I think it would behoove us to be much more uh, less reliant on that single market and more reliant on more market opportunities so that we can balance. 
And actually, Tanner, this next question was my question, because as we've continued to talk about avian influenza here on the podcast, we are starting to see less and less cases reported. But I wanted to know, because he was quoted, you know, about a month ago, stating he didn't think avian influenza levels would get to 2015 levels, but we have still continued to see new cases reported. So I asked for his current outlook on it now. We're getting to the point where temperatures are going up, um, and we expect and anticipate that we're going to begin to see, and I think we have started to see a downturn in the number of incidences and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the circumstances. So I don't necessarily think we're going to get to the 50 million bird situation that we had in, in 2015. And I think part of the reason we're not is because I think our producers are doing a better job from a biosecurity perspective. I bet you asked that question because it has made a lot of headlines. Uh, it's hit here close to home, been, been local. So it was good to get to the bottom of that. And another issue that a lot of our listeners face, especially in season, is finding good help. So the next question that was asked was where he sees labor shortages going and, and where labor modernization is headed in regards specifically to the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. Well, I'm confident that if there was the political courage to get it passed, it would certainly provide greater stability uh, to the workforce and greater assurances to uh, producers across the country that there would be adequate numbers of workers. If there's one issue that gets me upset, it's this one. Because everybody in this town, everybody in this town knows that it's a problem. Everybody understands and appreciates that it creates great stress for agricultural producers. Everybody in this town knows how to solve the problem. In fact, they don't even have to really work hard at solving it because the industry and labor came together and said, here's the solution. You don't. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your Soy Checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your Soy Checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. Let me just talk about food security generally. I'm really proud of the work we're doing in this space. We started by taking a look at the SNAP program. It's a program that basically impacts around 43 million people today. Uh, the SNAP program uh, historically has received uh, increases by virtue of inflation. But the SNAP program has, in 45 years of its existence, has never had a review of the foundation of the program to determine whether it was still adequate for families. So this administration took it upon itself to take a look at food prices, to take a look at what people are currently buying in the grocery store based on surveys, take a look at the activity level of American families and to take a look at the dietary guidelines and ask the question, is is the Thrifty Food Plan, which is the foundation for SNAP, is it designed and is it working and is it being implemented in a way that, that reflects the reality of American food? And it turned out, no, it's not. Uh, it turned out that there needed to be an adjustment and an increase in that floor, in that foundation. During the course of the pandemic and even today, with the pandemic EBT assistance program, we're basically saying to families whose children are free and reduced lunch, hey, we get it. We know that it's tough. We know that it's you're having a hard time. We know that during those summer months, for example, uh, when schools stop serving meals, 
uh, or you don't have access to a summer feeding site, you want to make sure your kids are well fed. We're providing uh, resources. I just got a report today that many, many, many states are now filing their plans for pandemic EBT for the summer, which is good. We've seen an expansion of the summer feeding program. Uh, our WIC program, 6.3 million women and children benefiting from this program, but the sad reality is that's only 50% of the eligibles. So we're committed, uh, committing resources to figure out what more can we do with state agencies to be able to get more people in that program. When schools uh, were faced with uh, the dilemma of the supply chain disruption, and they basically put their menus together only to find out the day before they have to serve the hamburger, that there is no hamburger to serve, we stepped forward and provided extensive relief uh, to, to, to school districts and encouraged Congress to continue the waiver that would have increased reimbursement levels, would continue an increase of reimbursement levels. Congress has chosen not to do that. That is an unfortunate decision that Congress has made, and it's going to cause some serious difficulties this fall. This is a decision that Congress has made, not this administration, Congress. So what are we, we're now looking at ways, limited ways in which we can provide additional flexibility, additional help and assistance to be able to make sure that those school districts have at least a shot at being able to, to take care of our kids. We're doing a lot, but I don't think there's an administration. Who mapped the soybean genome? You did. Yes, you. Better varieties are on the way. Today's soybean farmers, that's you, are achieving big breakthroughs in seed. How? By pooling your resources through your soy checkoff. Your soy checkoff research sequenced the soybean genome to help seed companies and other researchers bring better varieties faster to your operation. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org slash hopper. A considerable period of time has done uh, more than what we're doing. In fact, I think we've done the most of, of any administration in quite some time uh, on, on, on food security. And we've also basically said to the country, it's not just about feeding people. It's about feeding people well. Well, Tanner, again, that was Secretary Bill Sack a couple of weeks ago in Washington Watch when I had the opportunity to sit down with him along with many other farm broadcasters. It was a little disappointing you didn't take me on the trip with you. I know the business <laughs> had to get down here at home. So uh, obviously, Cassidy and I took the reins. But as we were listening to this conversation with Secretary Bill Sack, uh, local news alert popped up on my phone. So coming out of Des Moines, Iowa, it says, Iowa pig farmers are raising a stink because they want to sell their products to the state that annually consumes 15% of all their U.S. pork. So do you know what state that is, Delaney? Um, I was going to guess California just because of the Prop 12 stuff, but I'm unsure. Correct. So it is California, and the Supreme Court has agreed to hear the challenge to the California animal welfare law. So that is, again, in regards to pork sold in the state that come from farms, and they obviously wanted them to be more spacious. So uh, it's good to see here. We will stay in touch with this and probably have an update for you tomorrow. But breaking news is that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear that case. And that is big breaking news, Tanner, because this is the final step that pork producers could take before we for sure have to follow suit with the Prop 12. So really, this is the final step to determine, is this going to go into effect or not? So listeners, tune in tomorrow. Hopefully we have more 
information and news on this. But for today, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. I don't think that we're at that point where we believe that uh, that we're not able to provide assurances to to our to our farmers and ranchers and producers that the safety net that's been put in place is going to be inadequate to the time. You know, I think one of the challenges that we face is as we continue to diversify agriculture and as we continue to see the impacts of a of a changing climate. I think we are learning the need for versatility and and uh, flexibility in our disaster approach to disasters. And, you know, I think the fact that we uh, the Congress had to appropriate an additional ten billion dollars under what is commonly referred to as the WIP Plus program out there in the countryside is a reflection of the fact that the disaster programs that we have uh, probably need to be looked at very carefully and closely and need to be able to be flexible enough to understand that a disaster in the West is potentially different than a disaster in the Southeast, which is potentially different than a disaster in New England. Um, and the crop uh, commodity disasters oftentimes uh, 
played differently in different parts of the country. Uh, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, and I think what we learned during the pandemic uh, with a number of the pandemic assistance programs is the need for us to be very sensitive to to uh, the complexity of American agriculture. Um, you know, when we had the CFAP program, it was distributed in a way that a number of producers were left out uh, of that program. And so, and we saw greater participation, particularly by small socially disadvantaged producers. So I, I think the area of concern that I have is in that is in that space as opposed to whether or not the safety net programs are, are adequate to that. One thing that keeps going through my mind is, why did I take this job again? (laughs) But but to be responsive to your question, um, there is a, this notion of balance and flexibility is going to be a reoccurring theme here, I think, in responses to the questions you all have. You know, my concern is that we calibrate the importance of production and profit. Uh, And when I say that, I mean, Clearly, the world is going to need more production uh, in terms of the, being able to make up for the production losses that are going to occur in Ukraine. We know uh, that under the best-case scenario, from what we know from satellite technology and so forth, that a relatively small percentage of the traditional planting uh, in Ukraine is taking place. We also know that they are are stressed in terms of their access to uh, the the basics to be able to make sure that that crop is a successful crop. And we know that there will be issues relative to where that crop goes uh, in terms of uh, the ports that are currently uh, at risk. Uh, And so the world is basically now concerned about, are we going to have enough to be able to satisfy the need of developing countries in North Africa, uh, countries that are, are themselves not particularly uh, stable uh, and with a lack of food could be very much unstable. And so how do you make sure that American agriculture responds as it traditionally and historically always has responded to the crisis of the day by saying, you know, we're here to help? Uh, Doing that in a way that also maintains uh, the the pricing to uh, one of the reasons why the input costs are, well, well, a concern, but they, they would be a greater concern if, if corn were selling at $3 a bushel instead of where it is today. So how do you keep that in mind uh, as you try to maintain profitability for producers? You try to encourage more production to satisfy the humanitarian need uh, and to do it in a way that uh, also does right by the climate. That's a pretty tricky balancing act. Now, I, I think we're we're navigating it, uh, you know, We our CRP program, we basically trusted farmers. We said, look, here's the program. You all can make the right decision for your operation. We trust you. Uh, and, indeed, farmers have made that decision. We're basically saying, look, uh, if you have the opportunity to double crop, we, ex- we understand and appreciate that there are risks associated with that. How can we help mitigate those risks, which is why the president's uh, Ukraine package uh, includes additional resources to 
minimize the risk of a, of, of a double, double cropping circumstance and situation. Um, we, we also appreciate and understand that uh, there are climate issues that have to be addressed, and that's why the Climate Smart Partnership Initiative is put, put together. So we're trying to create um, a, a lot of balance here, uh, and anything could tip it one way or the other. Um, but I, I will tell you that our folks are, are working hard, uh, and they, they care deeply, and I know the producers out there understand that. Well, no one's ever done this before at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. No one's ever come back. Um, there, there have been people who have served consecutive uh, administrations, but no one And so this is a, uh, an opportunity to learn. The way I answer that question is it's a simple answer. Um, I love the people I work with. Uh, the people who work at USDA are just really dedicated folks. When you see the amount of work that is churned through this department uh, in a in the midst of a pandemic last year, the last fiscal year, 21, it's the numbers I have in my head, they did 53,000 home uh, farm loans uh, at USDA. There were over 43,000 conservation contracts that were approved and, and uh, providing help and assistance to, to producers. There were 137,000 home loans that were done at USDA, 137,000 families who had the pride of home ownership because of the work at USDA. We, we purchased uh, 9.9 billion pounds of food for distribution to food banks and, and uh, the school lunch programs. We helped to feed 30 million kids at schools. You know, the list goes on and on and on. We helped uh, several thousand businesses with, home, with business loans and business grants and communities. We did about 800 to 900 grants for local and regional food systems. So when you see the magnitude of the work that's been done, the Forest Service uh, and the tremendous work that they have to do to keep fires contained and things of that nature, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I, I love the people I work for, the folks out there in rural America. Um, they're good, hardworking folks. They care about themselves and their families and their communities and their country. And I think they're appreciative of the work that's done on their behalf at the Department of Agriculture. So it's a it's a relatively easy thing to do, and it's an, an incredibly uh honor. It's an incredible honor. I've known President Biden for, for over 30 years, um, and I've not been able to figure out how to say no to the guy. There are, I think, a number of opportunities from a trade perspective, uh, which is why we're focusing our trade mission, uh, several aspects of our trade mission on, on uh, Europe and the U.K. There's an opportunity there, especially the U.K., having uh, sort of distanced itself from, from the EU. It now has perhaps more flexibility in terms of some of the tough issues that have made it harder for us to have trade conversations with, uh, with the EU. Uh, I think uh, the fact that there's a trade mission being proposed to Kenya and to Rwanda indicates and suggests the the importance of getting a foothold, if you will, in, in the African continent. Our European friends understand the challenge and the opportunity there uh, with the growing populations and in some countries more stable governments uh, resulting in a stronger economy, rising middle class, more consumption of protein, uh, plays to the strengths of U.S. agriculture. Uh, the obvious uh, answer to your question would obviously be Southeast Asia as well for that same reason.
Uh, it's the it's uh, the the reason why uh, there's a uh, you know mission to, to the Philippines. If you take a look at where and uh, G20 meeting in Indonesia for for that purpose, and so and, and I think it's important to do all of that as a counterweight and a counterbalance to an over reliance and over dependence on one market, which is China. When you ask the question, you know, where are the concerns? Well, uh, the concerns are are in China, not necessarily because of the trade relationship, because that continues to to you know, to be a significant one. It's because there are other factors within that relationship that that could at some point in time disrupt that relationship. They could make a decision not to not to trade. Uh, I think that they're going to continue to need us given the, the challenges of Ukraine. They get a lot of their corn from Ukraine, for example. Where are they going to get it now that Ukraine has a hard time to growing it or exporting it? So I think I, my belief is it will continue to see a relationship there, but I think it would behoove us to be much more uh, less reliant on that single market and more reliant on more market opportunities so that we can balance. We're getting to the point where temperatures are going up, um, and we expect and anticipate that we're going to begin to see, and I think we have started to see a downturn in the number of incidences and the, and, and the, uh, uh, the circumstances. So I don't necessarily think we're going to get to the 50 million bird situation that we had in, in 2015. And I think part of the reason we're not is because I think our producers are doing a better job from a biosecurity perspective. Well, I'm confident that if there was the political courage to get it passed, it would certainly provide greater stability uh, to the workforce and greater assurances to uh, producers across the country that there would be adequate numbers of workers. If there's one issue that gets me upset, it's this one. Because everybody in this town, everybody in this town knows that it's a problem. Everybody understands and appreciates that it creates great stress for agricultural producers. Everybody in this town knows how to solve the problem. In fact, they don't even have to really work hard at solving it because the industry and labor came together and said, here's the solution. You don't have to compromise. You don't have to. Let me just talk about food security generally. I'm really proud of the work we're doing in this space. We started by taking a look at the SNAP program. It's a program that basically impacts around 43 million people today. Uh, the SNAP program uh, historically has received uh, increases by virtue of inflation. But the SNAP program has, in 45 years of its existence, has never had a review of the foundation of the program to determine whether it was still adequate for families. So this administration took it upon itself to take a look at food prices, to take a look at what people are currently buying in the grocery store based on surveys, 
take a look at the activity level of American families and to take a look at the dietary guidelines and ask the question, is, is the Thrifty Food Plan, which is the foundation for SNAP, is it designed and is it working and is it being implemented in a way that, that reflects the reality of American families? And it turned out, no, it's not. Uh, it turned out that there needed to be an adjustment and an increase in that floor, in that foundation. During the course of the pandemic, and even today, with the pandemic EBT assistance program, we're basically saying to families whose children are free and reduced lunch, hey, we get it. We know that it's tough. We know that it's ha- you're having a hard time. Uh, we know that during those summer months, for example, uh, when schools stop serving meals uh, or you don't have access to a summer feeding site, you want to make sure your kids are well fed. We're providing uh, resources. I just got a report today that many, many, many states are now filing their plans for pandemic EBT summer, which is good. We've seen an expansion of the summer feeding program. Uh, Our WIC program, 6.3 million women and children benefiting from this program, but the sad reality is that's only 50% of the eligibles. So we're committed, uh, committing resources to figure out what more can we do with state agencies to be able to get more people in that program. When schools uh, were faced with uh, the dilemma of the supply chain disruption, and they basically put their menus together only to find out the day before they have to serve the hamburger, that there is no hamburger to serve, we stepped forward and provided extensive relief uh, to, to, to school districts and encouraged Congress to continue the waiver that would have increased reimbursement levels, continue an increase of reimbursement levels. Congress has chosen not to do that. That is an unfortunate decision that Congress has made, and it's going to cause some serious difficulties this fall. This is a decision that Congress has made, not this administration, Congress. So what are we, we're now looking at ways, limited ways in which we can provide additional flexibility, additional help and assistance to be able to make sure that those school districts have at least a shot at being able to, to take care of our kids. We're doing a lot. I don't think there's an administration has done a, in, in, a, in a considerable period of time has done um, more than what we're doing. Um, in fact, I think we've done the most of, of any administration in quite some time uh, on, on, on food security. And we've also basically said to the country, it's not just about feeding people. It's about feeding people well. 